when my kids were little, and there's two of them right there, so I'm trying not to tell any exposing stories. But when my kids were little, they were pretty clumsy. Now, let's be fair, most little kids are pretty clumsy. You know, running into like the coffee table or tripping over their own feet or getting a finger caught in a zipper. And most of their little injuries weren't very serious. It was more like whining and crying and that kind of thing. And Corey and I discovered that uh, we had these little, little gel packs in the freezer. And this particular gel pack, it was a round one with a Spider-Man on it. We discovered that if you got that gel pack out for almost any ailment, it would calm them down. And so, you know, they trip and fall or something like that. And you say, oh, do you need Spider-Man? Yeah, we need Spider-Man. We get Spider-Man out. And oh, man, it was like magic. I don't know what was in that gel, but I wish it worked for all of our problems. But the Spider-Man gel pack would just cover up all sorts of little wounds. It even worked on hurt feelings sometimes, which is just amazing. I'm sure that there's, you know, psychological reasons for that. But in layperson's terms, I'm pretty sure the Spider-Man gel pack distracted them from the pain they they were experiencing, right? It was a a symbol of love and care and comfort. The Spider-Man gel pack remedy worked brilliantly on small injuries while my kids were little. It saved, you know, Corey and I tons of headaches as well. But if one of our kids had broken a bone or you know, been diagnosed with cancer or or some serious issue like that. And if all we did was offer them the Spider-Man gel pack, even if somehow it calmed their nerves down or made them stop crying or made them stop worrying, man, it would still be powerless to do anything of real value for a serious ailment. In fact, you could argue that merely covering up a serious diagnosis with a sleight-of-hand Spider-Man gel pack, it could have had disastrous consequences. You wouldn't actually deal with the issue. Now, on this fourth Sunday of Advent, we're less than a week away from celebrating the birth of Jesus, and we have so much to celebrate In the fullness of time, the God of the universe saw the desperate need of the human condition and came to earth in the person of Jesus. And it's often been said that you can tell a lot about the seriousness of a problem by the cost of the solution. That you can tell a lot about the seriousness of a problem by looking at the cost of the solution. And in our case, the God of the universe, the Almighty, made himself vulnerable in the infant, as an infant child. He died on a cross to redeem creation, to forgive us from our sin, and to offer us people who are destined for biological death. That's just what happens to people who are alive and any living thing to offer us eternal life. That's pretty amazing. God as a baby, God on a cross, that is a costly remedy. So how bad must the human condition be to warrant such an extravagant, extravagant rescue mission from God? Well, it doesn't take much reflection on the daily news or even looking into our own lives to know that the human condition really isn't very good. But you wouldn't know it necessarily by looking at most Christmas decorations, by most Christmas celebrations, or by most church services. We love to focus on the bright 
and the cozy and the decorations and the pastoral nativity scenes with welcoming, awestruck, halo-laden people and animals that seem to never like go to the bathroom anywhere in the area and they're just focused on baby and of course he doesn't cry or have dirty diapers. You wouldn't know the human condition required God's rescue at Christmas by watching most holiday films, except maybe Die Hard. Die Hard gets it. Like, that's a gritty film. (laughs) I just want to say two things up front in case you're starting to squirm. You're like, what's he on about? Is he going to start bashing Christmas? No. First of all, I am all for lights. Go drive by my house. Um, I keep getting more lights every year. I just like lights. I'm all for lights. I'm all for feasting. And I love me some cozy. All right. I love all those things. I think Christmas joy is the right response to what God has done for us. That's just the facts. That's where I'm coming from. Second, I want, I want to use some caution. Let's not make the Spider-Man gel pack remedies that I talked about earlier and Hallmark Christmas show fluff. Let's not make that replace true joy over what Jesus has done. If we fall into the trap of turning Christmas into an occasion for sentimentality, it loses its ability to meet us in our most desperate need. And sometimes it's important to see how ugly things really are in order to appreciate the light and the joy and the incredibly generous gift That is Jesus born in Bethlehem around 6 BC. One of the ways that we do this is by refusing to look away from the truth of how hard the world really is. Most of the time, when most of us think about Christmas and scripture, we think of angels and Mary and and shepherds and magi, and we think music and the good news of great joy and That's because that is all over scripture. We ought to be thinking about those things. But let's not forget that included in the gospels and in the nativity stories of Matthew and Luke, there are some very ugly stories surrounding the birth of Jesus. And rather than avoid them, I want us to refuse to turn away this evening. I want us to ask, why is this ugly story in the gospel, which gospel literally means good news. Why is this story good news? This first story addresses the human condition from the perspective of the human collective. It represents the big picture sin, sin with a capital S. If you heard my sermon last week, it is the current of Uh, that we're in, that we can't necessarily discern because it's just in the water that we drink and in the air that we breathe. It is the human condition. And it goes like this. It's from Matthew 2, 13 through 18. Now, when they had gone, speaking of the Magi, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up, Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and he left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged 
And he sent and he slew, he killed all the male children who were in Bethlehem and its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined by the Magi. What time did you see that star? It was about two years ago since you showed up. All right, this kid's got to be alive in that range. I don't know which one it is. I'm a lazy person with lots of power. Let's just kill them all in that range. This is horrible. This is in the Bible. This is to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet uh, Jeremiah, which was fulfilled, a voice was heard in Ramah weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. End quote. You know, this is not one of those stories that we see in children's Bibles. This is not one of those stories we see on Christmas Eve pageants, and for good reason. Like, this is horrible. If this was made into a miniseries by HBO, it would be like for mature audiences only, right? Like this, this, yeah, HBO would have fun with this one. Can you imagine a nativity scene? Like, do you guys have those at your house? I've got all the little characters. They're like, I think they're all on Jesus and the dog got one of the shepherd boys, so his hair's all funny. But anyway, um, we have one of those nativity scenes at home. And we don't have anybody with daggers. We don't have swords kicking down people's houses, ripping children out of their mother's hands. That would be a horrible nativity scene. But it's in the Bible. And it's in there for a reason, I think, right? Last week when we looked at the story of the Magi coming to Jerusalem and meeting with Herod, the narrator gave us this line that many of you actually talked to me about this week. You, uh, about three of you said, hey, I've got a question about this line. What do you think? Here's the line. So the Magi declare that they saw the star in the east and that they believed it was leading them to the birth of a new king in Israel. And the narrator says, here's the line that people asked about. When Herod heard, heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem was troubled with him. People said, well, I get why Herod is probably troubled. But why is all Jerusalem troubled? Well, why would Herod be afraid? Herod was not a good king. He was not a devout follower of God. He was concerned with his own power. He was not concerned with leading Israel well. He would have been afraid of a rival to his throne. It's pretty banal. Like, that's why Herod was afraid. But why all of Jerusalem? I mean, if a new king was coming, and if it's supposed to be the Messiah, the fulfillment of this prophecy, why wouldn't they rejoice? Well, for two reasons. First, just look at history, and any time that there's a change of power, it's messy and people get hurt. And as much as you want the system to change, you've got a job in your system, you know how to provide for your family in that system, and revolutions are ugly. And people are terrified. Second, they were terrified because they knew what kind of man Herod was. As he grew older, Herod became unstable. Over the course of his life, he had 10 different wives, and through these wives, he had dozens of boys. And as he grew older, he grew paranoid. 
And if he even sniffed that uh, one of these boys was conniving to take his throne, he would have them killed. Multiple sons he killed himself or had them killed, and some of his ex-wives or some of his wives. This is a crazy man. One of the most notorious historical accounts we have of this scary character, Herod, is that just before he died, He ordered hundreds of nobles and righteous people, well-respected people in the community in Jerusalem. He ordered his soldiers to take them, hundreds of them, put them in an arena. And when he died, he told the commanders of the army, slaughter these people so that there will be mourning in Jerusalem. Because he knew no one would mourn for him. And when he died, the commanders didn't follow through on that. But that is is, uh, written in Roman histories. I mean, this is... This is just the type of person he was. Uh, It is in the history books. That's the type of man who was in power when Jesus was born. That was the king of the land in which Jesus was born. That type of man puts fear in people. That's the type of man who could order the slaughter of innocent children in the hopes that he gets just the one that he's concerned about. Matthew is writing into a world dominated by the Roman and Greek ideals of strength and leadership, ruling with virtue and authority and power. Okay? Remember, Matthew's an evangelist, and he's writing 30, 40, 50 years after Jesus, right? and he's trying to tell people, hey, this guy Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. I want you to believe this. He's writing to a group of people in a culture where they valued strong leadership, power, okay? If Matthew's trying to convince people that Jesus is the true king of the world and worthy of worship and allegiance, why would he include this horrible story? A story about weakness and humility and vulnerability. A story in which the king, the Messiah, is forced to flee to Egypt of all places. A story in which upon his return, he doesn't even feel safe to go back to Bethlehem in Judea. And so he has to settle in the backwoods of Nazareth in Galilee. When Josephus, the historian, Jewish historian who is employed by the Romans, writes the history of the Jewish people, he mentions all of these little towns. He doesn't even mention Nazareth because it is so backwoods. It is a nowhere town. For some reason, Matthew wants us to know this. He's not ashamed of it. What is going on? I believe Matthew includes this story because it represents the brokenness of the world in its true and ugly reality. He's not sugarcoating. This is not a hallmark gospel. The gospel is only good news because Jesus is able to redeem the real world that we live in. See, a Christmas story that is just cozy and cuddly can't speak to our actual experience. Certainly not to the actual experience of most of the two-thirds world today. It's a gospel that only means something. Like if, it, if, the, if the Christmas story is only about cozy and cuddly and bright lights, it can only speak to our lives when things are going pretty well. And our biggest problem is, oh, COVID and we can't have everyone over for dinner or, oh, uh, that person doesn't like prime ribs. So now we have, or there's a gluten-free person. You know what I mean? It's like, those are the kind of problems that sugarcoat Christmas can, make, can meet, right? 
But if you've got actual real problems, if you're an oppressed people, that kind of gospel doesn't have much to say. That's a Spider-Man gel pack solution to a serious problem. You know, there's no lack of content in Scripture about God's interactions with people who are actually really suffering. But for much of the church in the Western affluent world, you would think that following Jesus was about being buddies with Jesus. You would think that it's about, you know, doing his work. All the stuff we can do for him, about being a moral person. And I think that that position is a position of the privileged, right? Like, we don't think we need much because our wealth in general in our society um, covers up so much. And, and when we do encounter pain and tragedy, many of us will turn to the church for support, like, like you're with me or a meal train, um, but they don't see a God who identifies with their suffering. Because what they're hearing at church is fun God, is shallow God, is I'm with you and for you God, but not I can do this. I have been in the trenches before. I have been born under a crazy man who killed all the little kids. That's, that's the God that we have. When faced with like ugliness and horror and atrocities, our tendency is to look away. It's to avoid. It's to well, you know, watch a sitcom or go for a hike. And if we can avoid looking at atrocities, it probably means we're privileged. If we can avoid it, it probably means we're privileged. And it probably means we need to look a little more closely. It's important that we have a God who has actually experienced genuine, horrible evil. Matthew 2 tells us that he isn't just a God who is aware of such things. He's not just a God who's aware that bad things happen to other people. He's a God who is the recipient of that evil. He submitted himself to the same injustice that people all over the world experience. And don't think that the angel warning Joseph so that Jesus doesn't get killed, don't think that that's like a special privilege because Jesus is being preserved so he can go to the cross. It's not like a special pass because he's the son of God. This story tells us that Jesus is not the God who stands above and does nothing. And it also is not saying that Jesus is just merely one of us, a kind, perfect man, but he can't really help us. It's not saying either of those extremes. He is a God who suffers with, he knows what suffering is like, and because he knows what it is like, because he's intimately aware of human darkness and evil, his salvation is effective over the most corrupt human atrocities and tragedies. You can say amen to that. That's, that's, that's deep and rich. His salvation, he, he's aware of the, of the lowest of the low, and so he can pick it up. The Jesus we celebrate at Christmas is not just a nice God who humbled himself and tries to make people feel good. He descended into the darkness of empire and corruption and sin and death. Jesus is a hardcore savior. He's gritty and he's come to redeem us all. Matthew includes this story 
because without the darkness of reality, the joy of salvation can just seem hollow and shallow and empty. The good news is that the salvation of Jesus is substantial and it's informed and it's powerful. The story in Matthew is important because it gives us hope for redemption of the world, the whole world. But that's not all that Jesus is about. I'm thankful that he's going to redeem the whole world and all of creation, but he's not just about the big picture. The part of the gospel is that while Jesus came to save the world, he also came to save you as an individual. He came to save you. And part of that transformation that takes place is learning to trust Jesus in spite of the pain and in spite of the suffering that we experience. For a more personal example, we turn to the second chapter of Luke's gospel. This is taking place when Jesus has just turned eight days old and his parents took him, as was the custom, they took him to the temple to be dedicated and circumcised. And we're gonna pick up the story in Luke 22, or Luke 2, 22 through 36. So when the days of their purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord as it was written in the law of the Lord Every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And they went to offer a sacrifice according to what was said of the law, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Okay, that's the sacrifice they would make. Okay, there came a man in Jerusalem who was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout and looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ or Messiah. And he came in the spirit to the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him in his arms and blessed him uh, in God's name and said, now, Lord, you're releasing your bondservant to depart in peace, according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And his father and mother, Mary and Joseph, they're amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, the mother, this is the important part if you've been spacing out, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and for the rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed He's speaking to Mary now, and a sword will pierce even your soul to the end that the thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. A sword will pierce your soul. Mary, mother of Jesus. Let me just get this off my chest. We've got the angel Gabriel revealing who Jesus is to Mary. We've got Mary's Magnificat, which is this articulation of what Jesus was going to do. And now Simeon is telling Mary that her love for Jesus would pierce her heart like a sword. In reference to the song, Mary, did you know? Yes. (laughs) Had to say it. Now, to be fair, there's a difference between knowing and deeply knowing. Right? And I think that that's where the rub is of that. Matthew 2, Herod's atrocities represent the big picture. World evil 
Jesus' ability to redeem all of that. Mary represents every disciple, every one of us who claim to follow Jesus in any capacity. She was the first disciple, and just like us, Mary's faith in Scripture ebbs and flows. Just like many of us, she expresses doubts, and her story gives us hope in that we see her faith mature over her life so that at the end, Mary, the mother of Jesus, is able to stay with Jesus to the end, not to look away when her baby, when her son, and more importantly, when her Lord is suffering on the cross right in front of her. Most other people left. Mary was there. Her faith started where many of ours does, and that's with youthful enthusiasm. Actually, it doesn't matter what age you come to faith, but there's an enthusiasm when one kind of, this is pretty great, I'm forgiven, this is pretty great, Jesus is awesome. And she's visited by an angel in the beginning of of, of the Gospel of Luke, um, and her response to the news that she's going to be pregnant with the Son of God is, let it be. The Beatles had a great song from that, right? So let it be. I mean, it's this enthusiastic, childlike faith, like, wow, I want to be like that. Now, let's take nothing from Mary that is an incredible act of faith. What a response to the news that will forever alter her life. But that childlike faith meets a shocking interruption when Simeon predicts that her love for Jesus will turn out to cause her suffering. Okay? Eight days after he's born, that's what she finds out. Years go by, the next story we have is about the juvenile Jesus who leaves his parents worried, uh, worried sick when he remains in Jerusalem and their caravan starts heading back home and they realize a few days into the journey that he's not there. Then there's times when Mary seems full of faith. Like at the wedding in Cana, this new couple, uh, the, the married couple runs out of wine at their party. Mary has faith that her son has power to do something. Like she doesn't know what, but hey, whatever he says, do it. She hasn't quite learned that Jesus was her Lord. She still thinks she's the matriarch and the mom in the situation has the power. But she's beginning to learn and have faith that he's the Lord. So while she not, may not be like this to Jesus, she's like, son, I know you have power. Do something. <laughs> right? Her faith has advanced, but it's not quite there. How many times do we pray to Jesus to do what we want in times of tra- uh, trouble rather than seeking what he wants? I think that Mary gives us permission to be on a spectrum of faith and to not be perfect in our faith, but she's also not done yet. When Jesus began his public ministry, Mary and the siblings of Jesus tried to force him to come home. The Greek text says they tried to apprehend him. They were worried about him. They thought, I mean, I know what the angel said, but is he doing it right? Because respectable young Jewish men don't tell religious leaders that they're not doing it right. And respectable young Jewish men don't typically hang out with prostitutes and sinners and tax collectors. And I wonder if Mary thought, this is embarrassing. I wonder if Mary thought, 
Have I made a a mistake in my parenting? I wonder if Mary thought maybe Jesus is mistaken in his role. That's not how you Messiah. When our lives go sideways or Jesus doesn't meet our expectations, how do we respond? Do we alter our expectations or do we blame Jesus? It begs the question, like, who is the Lord of my life? When Jesus doesn't meet my expectations, what leg am I standing on? Finally, we see Mary at the foot of the cross where her son, her Lord, hanged. And rather than try and coerce him to do what she wants or to try and make it all better, or rather than hopelessly attacking verbally or physically these Roman soldiers trying to to scrape together some kind of resistance, she's able to suffer with and to be at the foot of her Lord and let him do what he's going to do. She has put her trust in Jesus to redeem the moment, to bring life where we can only see death. She could only see death in that moment. She couldn't have truly known about the resurrection and the victory that was to come out of this dead-end scenario. She couldn't have known that. But she trusted that Jesus would do something greater than she could imagine. And this faith, this hope in Jesus allowed her to stick with him in that horrible pain. There's no hallmark version of Herod's atrocities. There's no hallmark version of the cross. Well, there's some really bad cards with crosses on them, but uh, you know, there's nothing worth looking at from those places. But there is redemption from the atrocities. There is redemption from the cross. And real darkness sets the stage for very real light and resurrection. And that, that is where we place our hope. It's in Jesus, the one who doesn't cover over pain with Spider-Man ice packs. He makes things new through his own suffering and his death and his resurrection. And if, if the light, or if in light of this message, you are filled with hope and joy in Jesus, then plug in those lights and trim that tree and feast, and worship, and party, for the light of the world has dawned, and the daylight of the kingdom is coming in the second advent. Come, come, Lord Jesus.